I'm Noah Farley, and I'm here today with Stacey Taniguchi. Thank you for coming in today. Thank you for having me. And he is the forum speaker for this week. Today we're going to be talking about your talk and how you prepared for it. So I was reading over your bio before you came over, and it says that you used to be a professor at Brigham Young University's Marriott School of Business. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Um, it was actually my second career. I started off as a high school science teacher, and I did that for about 23 years up in Anchorage, Alaska. And then my wife, who is from Utah County, um, wanted to come home, be closer to family, so we decided let's do that. And eventually, um, realizing that I still had a lot of energy left to do something worthwhile, I was convinced by some of my neighbors who happened to be BYU professors that maybe I should just go back to school and earn a PhD. Uh, so I did that. Um, that took me four years. And um, just fortunately, or as my neighbor would say, being blessed, um, there was a job opening that happened in um, a recreation management uh, a department at BYU. And even though I don't have a degree in recreation, um, my education primarily had been in the natural sciences, specifically the life sciences. And then my PhD was in educational leadership and foundations. But I had an extensive background in outdoor recreation. I was a wilderness guide for 25 years and um, had a lot of experiences in the outdoors and taking people on trips. So they were very interested pretty much in my, you know, personal experiences in that area. Mm -hmm. And so I, they asked me to uh, apply for a job in their department, and I did. And um, for whatever reason, they decided to hire me, and I started teaching there, ended up being there for a little over 15 years. Uh, eventually, the recreation management department uh, got moved over from the College of Health and Human Performance over to the Marriott School of Business, which was kind of a strange move at the time, but it ended up being probably a wise move. Uh, and we decided that we weren't just about recreation. We were really about experiences, how to design experiences and how to manage them. And in today's world, uh, even in the business world, the user experience, the customer experience, the employee's experience have all kind of risen to the top as being very critical information that, you know, business people want to know about. Mm -hmm. And um, so our department started to focus on that. And right now it's probably a, a very respective department in the Merritt School of Business because we can filter ourselves into all the other areas of business and help them kind of understand a little bit more about the science and nature of, you know, people's experiences and how that impacts their business. So that's, I, I ended up doing that. That's way cool. A lot of the people that I've been interviewing this semester have talked about how the experience that they're giving their customers. So I think that's definitely something important. Right yeah, there. I think it is definitely, um, come to a lot of people's attentions now because you probably have heard this statement, you know, life is not just about collecting things. It's about collecting experiences. And I, I really believe that that is one of the main reasons why we're here on this earth is to have good experiences, learning experiences, and sometimes hard experiences so that we grow. And um, if you understand 
kind of the human nature around how people face experiences and things like that, um, you can come into a place where you can actually design experiences to have the outcomes that you want, you know, and uh, that's kind of what the Department of Experience Design and Management, which it's now called in the Merritt School of Business, um, primarily researches and studies and teaches the students who decide to major into that field. Within all of your um, expertise with um, outdoor activities, I wanted to ask you, what was your favorite outdoor activity? Well, my background primarily centered around uh, wilderness types of adventures, mm-hmm. but it kind of focused uh, more and more into mountaineering, specifically high-altitude mountaineering. And a lot of that was kind of pushed in that direction because of the business I was in, in, in guiding um there's a lot of people, I think, who feel like, you know, I, I can go out hiking without having to pay someone to show me the ropes and where to go and that type of thing. Um, people can, you know, fly fish or go fishing on their own and pretty much can do most of it. Um, but mountaineering and climbing is a very different area. You know, there are skills that you need to know. There are safety things that you need to know. And then when it comes to high-altitude mountaineering, you know, it's really nice to be going with someone who's been there, done that, mm-hmm. and understands what's going on. So from an economic point of view, um, mountaineering guiding just became kind of the focus of what I really did. Uh, started in Alaska and was guiding people on um, Denali, uh, used to be called Mount McKinley, which is the highest mountain in North America. And then it became more popular by a guy named Dick Bass, who actually was living in Salt Lake City at the time when he got this grand idea to climb the highest mountain on each of the seven continents. And um, when he did that, and he, he was kind of an older gentleman, but he physically got himself in shape and obviously had the money to, to do this. He hired guides to take him to each of the seven continents and attempt to climb all seven of these mountains, which he ended up doing. Wow. And a book was written about it. It's called The Seven Summits. And that has actually become a name that's been pretty well known amongst at least the climbing community, but I think a lot of people have probably heard it. And people began to think, well, if he could do it, I could do it. But it was pretty obvious he could not do it without a professional guide who had kind of had experiences on the mountains. And so in the field of guiding, um, if you could get yourself into that marketplace, it became very profitable. And so that's kind of how I steered into that direction. Um, But it primarily started with a client. I had a client who was very interested in climbing the seven summits. And so I kind of um, became his personal guide along there were actually several others who he brought on board and we started with Denali and at the age of 59 he climbed Denali and then started chasing the other six summits of which he did all of the others except for Everest but he did make it um, to the south summit which is just 300 feet from the top so and he was 69 years old at the time wow. so he uh, over a period of 10 years you know pretty much conquered at least six of the seven. And I I would even say the seventh one, he was 
so close that I, I'll give him a star for that. As you're saying that, seven continents, that makes me think like, wow, even Antarctica. Yes. Like, what's the highest point in Antarctica? It's called Vinson, Mount Vinson. Mm -hmm. And it's part of what they call the Patriot Hills. So um, the hardest part, to be honest, is just getting there. Because, <laughs> you know, there's not any commercial flights that you can just make a reservation and then you're going to go. And you pretty much need to have a guide or people who are very well connected so most people usually will go down to the tip of South America, mm -hmm. uh, and an area they call Patagonia, and you um, hopefully can make some previous arrangements, but sometimes people are down there just hoping they can hitch a ride with a military mm -hmm. flight that's going to go to Antarctica, and obviously they, they're not on any kind of regular schedule, so sometimes you just sit around and wait. But eventually the hope is you can get on a flight, they'll fly you down to Antarctica, and then you have to get on another flight to out to the area that puts you at the base of this mountain range. And um, typically climbing Vincent's about a four or five day expedition of climbing the mountain. Ugh, yikes. I'm just like, I don't even want to imagine uh, being down in Antarctica for five days. Yeah, it's uh, well, you're there actually longer because right. you have to establish camps. Mm -hmm. But... Um, I've never been to the moon, obviously, but I'm kind of thinking that's probably the closest thing. It's pretty barren down there. Still cold. You know, you're down there in our winter months. So like probably December through February is typically the time period uh, <clears throat> because that's their summer months because it's on the southern side of the equator. Right. And um, but even then, you know, a typical daytime temperature on a nice sunny day might get to 10 degrees above zero. So it's, you know, it's still cold, but um, it's a, it actually, though, is a very beautiful place, very scenic, just, you know, white and just uh, empty. <laughs> I feel like that's like a good place to really feel the spirit, I guess. Just like you can. contemplate, yeah. I guess. Yeah. And to, and to actually, you know, you get the mo these moments where you realize, you know, God's been here, too. <laughs> yeah, even in a place like that. Yeah. But in, in the mountains, to be honest, you get a lot of those moments, mm -hmm. you know, no matter where you are, because it's usually very remote places. And um, man hasn't really touched much in those kinds of areas. And uh, you, you get connected with kind of this transcendent kind of feeling that in my head, yeah, there's definitely a God out there. Whether you know, I I don't care who you are. You you go to a place like that, and it's hard not to get that feeling. Yeah, I feel like being up in the mountains would be a very sacred place. I mean, throughout the scriptures, we see many examples where the prophets went up into the mountains to have very spiritual experiences with God. Yeah, I think there is a definite reason for why the mountains become that sacred place for a lot of people. Um, I think a lot of it, like you mentioned, it's quiet, it's kind of uh, remote, mm -hmm. um, and having those moments where, you know, you can actually be in a place where you're looking at things and you're just wondering, how did this get here? How did this form? How, you know, and I, I, that's why I feel it's so hard for people not to realize somebody created this. Yeah. And that puts you kind of spiritually in touch with whatever powers 
you know, may be. And of course, for me, I, I realized there's a, a Heavenly Father and we have a Savior and they were very instrumental in this creation. So it's kind of a place where you can connect very well, you know. Yeah. And I and I think, you know, people around in even urban areas and things like that, especially for members of our church, they they look for those kinds of places. Well, not everybody can go to the mountains, but I really think uh, a place where that also you get that same feeling, feeling is the temples. Mm. You know, it's quiet, peaceful, um, maybe not so remote, but definitely places where you can be and be alone yeah. and have, you know kind of those moments of connection. Your talk is called Choose to Thrive, right? That's correct. Awesome. So how did you decide on your topic, Choose to Thrive? Well, that's kind of interesting, and I'll talk a little bit about it today in the forum, but it kind of started with my guiding experiences and having these moments where, you know, when you're a teacher, uh, you realize not everybody in the classroom is interested in what you're teaching. Right. A lot of people are in the class because they have to be. Mm. And um, you almost get immune to it as a teacher if you do it for so long because you just take this utilitarian approach. You know, okay, I can't reach everybody, but I'll reach as many as I can. Well, then some people are falling through the cracks. And, and is that right? Mm. I found that totally opposite when I'm guiding people in outdoor activities whether it's in the mountains, on a river, or hiking through the woods, all of my clients pay careful attention to what I say. They're interested in my stories, and they want to know more. They're always asking questions. And I always wondered, you know, why do the clients do that, but my students don't? There's something, there's a disconnect here. Mm-hmm. And, and there, have been, there were other experiences that really opened my eyes to the fact that, you know, I need to find out why. Because... How I impact my clients, I would certainly like to transfer over to the classroom so that everyone feels like, you know, if I can come to Dr. Taniguchi's class, I'm really going to learn something important or hear a great story that might help me to understand the content material a little better. So in the end, I kind of realized that I find sometimes, especially students, are just enduring their Mm. college career or, you know, their educational career, whatever it might be, high school or whatever. And um, I just didn't feel like that's really the right thing to do. You know, if if you're going to learn, you should be enthusiastic about learning. I mean, even in the church, you know, we emphasize, you know, lifelong learning. You're Mm. learning all the time. Well, if you're having bad experiences in your younger days about education, then that can really kind of disrupt that pattern. And so I kind of decided I want to understand what makes education a meaningful experience. And um, I I use this example. I actually teach this in a class. I said, how many of you, and I will write on the board, uh, a quadratic equation? Now, I think most people have heard that, and I'm pretty sure most of your audience have done quadratic equations. If you remember back in your high school days and you took an algebra class or in college, quadratic equations is a unit that you spend usually several weeks studying and practicing the problems and then you get tested on it and you probably do well on it because you figured it all out. Well, 
when I write it on the board and I ask my students, how many of you can actually solve this quadratic equation, there might be one or two that might be just graduated from high school, or mm-hmm. maybe I might have a math major in the class, but most of the students don't. They recognize it. Admit, you know, They go, oh, I, I remember, but they don't remember how to do it. I'm afraid a lot of our educational experiences are like that. And John Dewey called that an educative experience. Because basically all you're getting in your educational career typically is you're being taught something, you're giving some time to reflect on it, we might call it study, and that's it. And we've, we've really learned, even through research, that we don't retain much of what we learned in our previous education. Well, what if we could turn that around and make topics of your subject area meaningful meaning that they're memorable and they have application in your life. So I wanted to know how to do that. And that became really my research agenda as a professor at BYU and taking the time to understand that I don't want students just to endure their college education. And to even expand it, I don't want people just to endure life. I'd like for them to thrive and use it so that it helps them feel better about themselves, help them learn things, help them to experience things that helps to build up who they are, help them to find what I call the sublime nature of every human being, which I believe is something that we unknowingly tend to hide. Mm. We spend so much of our life layering ourselves with what I call societal layers. I mean, you're doing it right now by getting an education because you want to add on to you this title of being a college graduate with a bachelor's degree or a master's degree or a doctoral degree. Um, People in business, they want that title of vice president, senior president, you know, CEO, CFO, whatever. Everybody is striving to have these societal layers put onto them because They believe that's what society expects of them, to be so-called successful Mm -hmm. or noteworthy. The problem is is it's like putting on a shirt, a jacket, a dress, an overcoat. Who you really are starts to fade away, and you you personally don't start recognizing yourself. Well, Immanuel Kant calls that the sublime nature of things. It includes humans as well as things in nature. And I usually give this example. Have you ever been somewhere where you've been hiking or just, you know, visiting somewhere? Maybe it's an edifice. Maybe it's a park. Maybe it's something in nature. And it just takes your breath away. It's just so incredibly awesome. And you take pictures. You might even write in your journal how you felt and whatever. And then you turn around and you go share it with someone. And you explain to them, you know, I was here and this is what I saw Here's some pictures of it. And they, they're looking at it, and they'll probably say, oh, yeah, that's, that's great. But they don't react the same way you're reacting. Well, Immanuel Kant explains that as being the sublime nature that is indescribable. You cannot describe this essence of what something is. Mm-hmm. Pictures won't do justice to it. Your explanations won't do justice to it. That's what I believe we're covering up is our sublime nature. Who are we? What are our weaknesses? What are our strengths? And then understanding those two, to at least some degree, helps you to understand your potentials. And 
understanding and realizing what your potentials are helps you now to have some sense of, well, where should I go? What should I hope for? What can I do proactively? And um, I believe that comes to help you lead a thriving life. And I've, you know, I've... I'm sure many of the people in your audience, you probably wonder, you know, what, what did God put me here for? What, what am I supposed to do? What's my purpose? Well, I think this is what my purpose is. I think I was able to discover some of these things because God said, Stacy, that's what I want you to do, is teach people how to thrive. Help them to find their sublime nature. Help them to find that connection to, to God, to who you are. Um, understand that Literally, we are spiritually connected to our Heavenly Father, to the Savior, to each other. And that connection doesn't come from the societal layers. The connection comes through the sublime nature of that person. My, my example that I always give is President Nelson. I believe he's a great example of this. He has so many accomplishments, so many societal layers that it just literally people can't believe that he's accomplished all these things. Mm -hmm. Yet, when you listen to him speak, like in general conference or whatever, none of that comes up. What he's speaking to you is I think he's trying to connect his sublime nature to your sublime nature. And I feel like when he does that, then people get connected with him. Because I personally can't connect to him for the titles and accomplishments that he's done. You know, I could live a hundred lifetimes and probably never accomplish the things that he's done in his life. So he's somebody like, you know, literally I would put on a pedestal and, you know, that's, that's him. And I, I could never be like him or be. Yet when he's talking to all of us, that's not how he's connecting with us. He's connecting with us, I believe through his sublime nature of who he really is. He knows he has strengths, but he also knows he has weaknesses. And he reaches out to us to connect with our strengths and our weaknesses, you know. So find out what that is. And so that's part of my message, is to, to literally find a path that helps you to live a life to thrive. And it's not rocket science. That, that, <laughs> that's, I think, what resonates with a lot of people. In my talk today, I will give the audience some tools that they can actually take and do right now. It's a simple message and doesn't require a degree, doesn't require a lot of education, doesn't even require money. You, you can literally start living your life to thrive today. Right on. <clears throat> and before we close up, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I, well, I just hope that... Your audience, include you know, definitely your students, realize that um, they have a purpose and there is a reason for them to be here. And I know, you know, we've been through some really hard times lately. And I'm not suggesting that there are not moments in life that you have to endure. Yeah, there are. That that's the truth. But life itself was never meant to be that way. President Hinckley said, you know, this life is to be enjoyed, not just to be endured. Right. And um, I, I, would just, I just want people to realize there is a way. There is a way. And you just need to, to know how to, you know, get started. And then from there, you know, you, this, 
you'll find out that this life is full of opportunities to accomplish some great things. Well, I hope that your talk goes really well when you give it. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, well, thank you for coming in today. Yeah, my pleasure.